In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In our gospel reading this day from Luke chapter 2, Jesus is undergoing one of the uh, rites that God commanded in the Old Testament, and so is his mother Mary, but I want to focus on the rite that Jesus undergoes. So Jesus is presented in the temple, and not only is he presented, but it's commanded in the law of Moses that all firstborn males who open the wombs of their mother be redeemed. And so this is what Mary and Joseph, in addition to Mary's purification, they are in the temple 40 days after the birth of Jesus in order that he, right, the firstborn son of his mother Mary, uh, could be presented and redeemed accordance, as it says in Luke 2, in accordance with the law of Moses. And any time any of these rites, these ceremonies show up that were instituted in the law of Moses, we do well to see from the law of Moses what the purpose of the ceremony was and how Christ is not only fulfilling it as one who fulfills the entire law in our place, which he does, but also as the one who by undergoing the ceremony gives meaning to the ceremony in the first place. And so St. Luke wants us to consider the ceremony of the presentation in the temple and the purification of the firstborn, or sorry, the redemption of the firstborn son. And that takes us back to the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. It takes us back to the angel of death and the slaughter of all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but also it takes our minds back to the sacrificial Passover lambs and the sparing of the sons of the Israelites. In the first place, that is what the ceremony of the presentation of the firstborn son in the temple called to remembrance. It recalls the plague of death and God's rescuing the Israelites. And this is what God, after he instituted the ceremony of redemption of the firstborn son, he says to the Israelites, when in future years, your sons ask you why you're doing this, why are you redeeming your firstborn son, tell them this. When your son asks you what this redemption means, say, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. That's when God institutes, uh, when God claims for himself all the firstborns, both of man and beast, and commands that the firstborn of man be redeemed instead of slaughtered and having his blood sprinkled on the altar and his flesh eaten by the priests. For obvious reasons, God commands that the firstborn of man be redeemed instead of sacrificed. Uh, but the scriptures do go on in the Old Testament, especially the law of Moses, and this command to redeem the firstborn son is repeated several times. 
not, without, not always with explanation, but the command to do so is repeated. But in all these instances, it should call our minds, whenever we run across the ceremony of the redemption of the firstborn son, we should think of what God did in Egypt to redeem his people from the house of bondage and slavery. Particularly, we are to remember how the blood of the lambs on their doorposts warded off the angel of death and spared them from the wrath of God. Those lambs had to be spotless, no blemish. Those were the lambs that were to be killed, blood sprinkled, and eaten. But spotless those those lambs were, we know that they had in themselves no power to redeem Israel from God's wrath or the angel of death. Those lambs sacrificed though, were sacrificed according to the word of God. And so those lambs who had their blood on the doorposts and who were eaten in accordance with the command of God, those lambs did spare the Israelites, not because of the lamb itself, but because of what the lamb was pointing forward to. The power of the lambs at the Passover in Egypt was derived only from the true lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only by shedding his blood, only by the shedding of Christ's blood, did those lambs have any power. Only by giving his flesh for the life of the world did the eating of their flesh confer any benefit on the eater. Only by Christ shedding his blood are all the firstborn in Israel's history able to be redeemed instead of sacrificed. Unless Christ comes and fulfills the Passover and the redemption of the firstborn in his flesh, then the first Passover and the redemption of all the firstborns in Israel's history is for naught. And so there are two things that I want to note here in the first place. Uh, first, that the blood which Christ shed on the cross is clearly not limited by time in either direction, forward or backwards. Christ's sacrifice is an historical event, and it took place at one particular point in time in our history. But it is at the same time also a cosmic event that took place outside of time, such that the blood of Christ atones for the sins of those who came before him to such a degree that their atonement is complete even before Christ in time is sacrificed because his sacrifice being outside of time avails for them too. And for those of us who live after the crucifixion, our sins were accounted to Christ and were atoned for even before we committed them. But the second thing to note is that the ability of the blood of the Passover lambs in Egypt to deter the angel of death means that the sacrifice of Christ must necessarily happen at some point in the future for the Israelites. Without the reality of Christ's death permeating all time, the blood of the lambs would have not been effective in warding off the angel of death, and the firstborn even of the Israelites would have been slaughtered. So the fact that the Israelites were passed over on account of the blood of the lamb on their doorpost is a sure and certain promise that the Messiah would come and would fulfill the promises that God had made to them. And as a remembrance of his mighty deliverance in Egypt, 
and also as a constant reminder of his promise to come and deliver them through Christ himself, God claimed all firstborn males for himself, both of man and beast. The firstborn of clean animals were required to be sacrificed, no redemption option. Their blood had to be thrown upon the altar, and the flesh of the animals was eaten by the priests. But the firstborn of man was required to be redeemed. They were not to be sacrificed, even though they were the firstborn that opened their mother's womb, and they belonged to the Lord. Yet he commanded that they be redeemed, that they be redeemed at the temple, and that a fixed price be given to the priest for their redemption all in anticipation of the day when they would be ultimately redeemed by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is that St. Luke wants us to know that the life, the deeds, the words, the death and the resurrection of Christ, which he is about to narrate for us in his gospel, St. Luke wants us to know that these things that he is about to tell us are a fulfillment of those events that God undertook in, in the book of Exodus when he redeemed Israel from Egypt. And it's also a fulfillment of all the times that a firstborn son had been redeemed at the temple uh, for the fixed price. The people of Israel who were rescued from slavery in Egypt are about to be rescued from bondage and tyranny once again. The exodus is about to be complete. In some ways, Christ comes in order to undertake a new exodus. But it's not like the exodus that God undertook when he rescued the people of Israel from Egypt. And so the people that are living in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus are expecting a Messiah and they're expecting, in some sense, probably an exodus, but they're not expecting an exodus like the one that Christ has come to inaugurate for them. Christ has come to uh, inaugurate not an exodus from the Romans, which is what most of the people are desiring, but he has come to, give, to bring them an exodus from their greater enemies of sin, death, and the devil. And that's a slavery that goes easily undetected. But it's a real slavery nonetheless. And it's a slavery that afflicts not only the Israelites, but it's a slavery that afflicts all humanity born according to the natural order of things since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. For everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And those who are slaves to sin are subject to death and are deserving of eternal condemnation with the devil and his wicked angels. The people of Israel could have easily told you about their bondage to the Romans, how they exacted extreme taxes from them, made a mockery of them and their way of life, and how life would be so much better for the Israelites if it only weren't for the tyrannical Romans. But most of them failed to adequately see or consider their bondage to sin that it was oppressing them in the way the Romans could not oppress them, and had, that their sin had much more severe consequences for them than their slavery to the Romans. They couldn't see how their own addictions, their own sins, the things that they did against God's law, they couldn't see how those things 
were enslaving them and plaguing them. They couldn't see how their factitious spirit was dividing them or how their pride under the law hindered them from true faith in God, which recognized that he does not act toward them uh, in kindness and grace because they deserve it, but rather he acts toward them in these ways only out of pure and undeserved mercy. But those were the very sorts of oppressors, their sins, their pride. Those were the very sorts of oppressors that Christ had come to free them from. Now Christ does, of course, ultimately free his people from bondage to the Romans too. But that lay in the future and it is less significant than rescuing them from their bondage to their sin. But even now, by his death and his resurrection, he has freed his Israel, his believers, from their bondage to sin, to death, and from the devil. He has freed them from sin by taking that their sin upon himself so that they are no longer weighing down those who believe in him. And he has atoned for it by his death. And by doing that, he has made death no longer a punishment for us, but rather he has transformed our death so that it is the gateway into eternal life. And since we now pass through death into eternal life, the devil no longer has a claim on us and he cannot oppress us or harm us. And this, although it is uh, hidden from our sight, this is a reality even in this life. So that those of us who believe in Christ and who have been redeemed by him are no longer enslaved to sin, but have been set free by the death and resurrection of Christ the benefits of which we receive through faith. This he did for his Israelites, just as he rescued them from Egypt, and he did it for those who are descended from Abraham according to the flesh. But not only for them, but he has done it for all of us, who are the true Israel by faith, that is, the church, those who believe in Christ and trust in him for salvation. And so we also then, those who have been thus redeemed, who Christ has bared his holy arm to rescue from sin and bondage as he did for those in Egypt, we also now must consider for ourselves what is it that is oppressing us that Christ has come to deliver us from. It is easy to, to write the question off quickly and to be like the Jews who considered their biggest oppressor to be the government and the culture surrounding them. It's easy for us to think that our biggest enemies and oppressors in this life are the state under which we live and the society in which we find ourselves. And if God would only tear it down and institute a new and godly government over us, the things would be fine in this life. Now God is certainly going to rescue us from those things but not until he returns again in glory or takes us to himself to heaven through death. And so we are better served to examine our own lives according to the Ten Commandments, that we may see those things which do not oppress our body, but that we may see those things which oppress and enslave our souls. So what sort of sins do we commit? What are we addicted to? How does our life stack up against God's law? How have we failed to love God and love our neighbor more than ourselves? 
And have we fooled ourselves into thinking that we're not actually that bad and that we're doing a pretty good job for ourselves? Only when we consider ourselves honestly according to God's law do we realize how oppressed we are by sin, the sin that leads to death and condemnation. But only then can we acknowledge that we need a rescuer, someone to fight for us and to deliver us from that bondage and death into freedom and life. And that exodus from our bondage to sin, death, and the devil is what Christ has come to do for you. That is why he is presented in the temple when he is 40 days old. For sure, he is there to fulfill the law that required that he be redeemed as the firstborn male who opened his mother's womb. But he is not ultimately redeemed. His flesh is not spared. He is there in the true sense to be the sacrifice that grants us redemption. He is not the redeemed, but the redeemer. He has come into the temple for sacrifice and atonement, even though that sacrifice will be delayed for about 33 years. That's why he's there. He is the sacrificial lamb, which renders all those Passover lambs in Egypt effective. He is the firstborn who is not redeemed, so that all the rest of us who are firstborn, especially as that finds its true meaning in the church, the firstborn of God, he is the firstborn who is not redeemed, so that we as the firstborn could, are, are redeemed. His blood is sprinkled on the altar in the presence of God for our atonement. And his is the flesh that is eaten by the priests, that is, the royal priesthood of all believers, you, to whom he gives his flesh and blood as food and drink to nourish you as he brings you through his exodus, through life, through death, and finally into the eternal life and freedom of heaven. He's come to bring, to bring about this exodus for you, to lead you out of your bondage to sin, death, and the devil, that you might not be oppressed and forever lost, but that, as Paul says to the Galatians, you would be an heir of everlasting life. Christ leads this exodus. He leads it through the path of the cross, that is death, but also through resurrection and through his ascension into heaven, that you might follow where he has gone, so that with Simeon and Anna, you might rejoice to see the redemption that he has won for us, and may joyfully follow him even through death into the joys of everlasting life. Christ was presented in the temple for you to be your redeemer, so that you might be redeemed to live with him forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.